My name is John Sylvester. I'm Australia's longest serving crime reporter and write a weekly column for The Age. Many of my colleagues have wondered why I've never bothered to move to other areas of the paper. The reason's pretty simple. I've got the best job in journalism, playing cops and robbers and getting paid for it. Over more than 40 years, I've covered some of Australia's biggest crimes and met fascinating characters on both sides of the law. In this series, you'll hear from them, the cops and the crooks, telling their stories. Welcome to my world. Welcome to Naked City. John McGill has always worn his heart on his sleeve, and today was no exception. I've looked into the eyes of their children just after Jane was murdered, and I saw enough. Retired butcher John McGill has helped crack some of Australia's most baffling murders, for it was he who was the inspiration behind a special million-dollar reward system. The reward system has resulted in some of the most baffling crimes in Australia finally being solved, but not the one close to John's heart. Police were called to the home in Muriel Street, Nidri, late this afternoon. They found a woman in her mid-30s lying in the front yard with two bullet wounds to the chest. The murder of Jane Thurgood Dove 34 years ago is a crime that should not have happened and could have been solved, if not for a series of blind alleys and dead ends. Investigators have interviewed over a thousand people, including witnesses, friends, associates and people who look like the face images. From day one, the answer was literally up the road, although it would take five long years before Homicide Squad detectives concentrated in that very direction. This is not a case of incompetence, rather of strong circumstantial evidence pointing to a different and innocent suspect that led police down the wrong path. First, the crime. On Oaks Day, November 6, 1997, Jane Thurgood Dove, 35, pulled into the driveway of her Muriel Street Nidri home, having picked up her three children aged 11, 6 and 3 from school and preschool. As she was getting out of her Toyota Land Cruiser, with her children still strapped to the seats, a stolen Commodore pulled up behind to block her escape and a pot-bellied gunman stepped out. He chased her twice around her car until she slipped. Then he shot her twice at point-blank range. Mrs Thurgood Dove was shot at close range in front of her three children by a pot-bellied man who was assisted by a driver. Her 10-year-old boy saw her bleeding to death. The impact on the children has been phenomenal. I know that there is still somebody out there who knows who holds the key to all this. And we can only still continue to appeal and beg that you come forward. Police say two men fled the scene in a stolen late model Commodore. It was found a short time later in a nearby street and had been set alight. It had all the hallmarks of a gangland hit, except the mother of three was no gangster. Neighbours can think of no explanation for the shooting, saying the woman was a good mother, living quietly with her young family. Her killer left a burnt-out getaway car and a shattered family in his wake. It's waking up every day and wishing you didn't, because you know you've got to face another day without Jane. Her death has taken a terrible toll on the children she lived for. 
you can feel sorrow with, with them. We cry for them and we cry with them. I kept in contact with John and Helen, two decent people dealing with grief and unanswered questions. I can be honest about this. Our lives just totally changed from day one. Jane's parents, John and Helen McGill, were at home after watching the races and were settling in for an early dinner when there was a knock at the door. They didn't get here till nearly six o'clock, I think. Well, it's about ten to, ten to six, a little bit warmish on the day. It was about 5.50pm on a warm spring day. We watched the oaks and then just settled down, and as we had, we'd settled down for a bit of dinner not long after the races, and... Uh, the front doorbell went and, uh, who the hell is this? It was a detective who, according to Helen, said, you have a daughter, Jane? What he said was, you have a daughter, Jane? And we said, yes. And he said, well, she's been shot and she's now dead. Just like that. They were told, as was Jane's husband Mark, they would be treated as suspects. And as they were eliminated, the investigation would widen in ever-increasing circles. While investigating Jane's private life, they found she had links to a serving policeman who knew the family and employed Jane to clean his house. Further investigation showed he was obsessed with her, had a shrine to her in his house, his computer password was her date of birth, and he tried to buy a cemetery plot right next to Jane's. Two witnesses gave police a description that fitted the senior constable and the policeman invoked his rights to refuse to answer questions, provide DNA samples or participate in a lineup. It was his right, but it only increased police interest. What was he hiding? A serving senior constable who was reportedly obsessed by Jane was also questioned. It's believed he failed a lie detector test. He did agree to a lie detector test. When he was asked, are you responsible for the death of Jane Thurgood Dove? He answered, no. The machine suggested otherwise. And so he became the prime suspect. But there was another theory, one that remained largely unexplored because the obsessive cop was squarely in the investigative crosshairs. I can tell you that he was a suspect, he's been interviewed, and uh, so is a lot of other people, but the investigations continue. Thorough background checks by police have revealed no obvious motive. They're still desperate for a breakthrough. A few days after the murder, my phone rang at work. It was John, a former butcher, who had fallen in with corrupt ex-solicitor Philip Peters. Peters, known as Mr Laundry, wanted to drug, abduct and murder underworld figure Peter Kipri, who he blamed for a $200,000 insurance fraud ripoff. Peter Kiprianu left the Melbourne Magistrates Court in 1999 with a wave and a smile, but $750 poorer. The fine handed out after he assaulted a Crown Casino croupier who failed to win him money in a rigged roulette game. The plot was to take Kipri to a farm at St Arnold's, where a secret cellar had been dark, where he would be tortured and murdered. Then John would use his butchery skills to dispose of the body. John went to police, who set up a sting operation codenamed Solly. Peters was arrested in April 1994 and charged with conspiracy to murder, 
although he would be allowed to plead guilty to attempted deduction and cultivate marijuana. He was sentenced to three years and was released a couple of months before Jane's murder. Police sources say Kiprianu was a prodigious con man who had many enemies. It's believed one adversary who wanted revenge took out a contract to kill his wife Carmel. The inside man John said to me in this phone call, when I saw her, meaning Jane, on Australia's Most Wanted, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. He said she looked like Peter Kipri's wife, Carmel, had the same build, hairstyle, and was around the same age. To be honest, I was underwhelmed and told John I didn't understand the connection. He said, didn't you know the Kipri's lived in Muriel Street? Not only did they live in the same street, they both lived three from the corner in light-coloured weatherboard homes on the same side of the street with a light pole out the front. They had school-aged kids and drove four-wheel drives. By the time Peters was released from prison, the Kipris had started to fortify their home and stop their children playing in the street. Carmel told Andrew Rule, who worked with me at the age at the time, that she'd considered if she was the real target of the hit team. Within weeks, they moved. Three days, a gunman and driver stalked who they thought was the right target, but instead shot Jane Thurgood Dove in her Muriel Street driveway in front of her three children. The mix-up occurred because the pair was told Mrs Kiprianu lived three houses from the corner, but they picked the wrong corner. Less than three weeks after the murder, we published a story raising the possibility that Carmel was the real target and Jane was the victim of mistaken identity. The fact that they had that information that you and Andrew were working on, the intelligence on the information initially in that first week uh, threw up the story from you and Andrew. And they, to my mind, they should have also looked at that. But see, we, we didn't realise any of this existed until five years later. Five years passed when Jane's dad, John McGill, contacted me again. John, you remember that you contacted me five, six years after you re That was in regards to the million dollars. Yeah, yeah. You, you you wanted um, a million dollar reward for Jane because both both you and Helen uh, w were never going to let this case go. You desperately wanted to know what happened. Exactly. Uh, and I said to you that I didn't think the government would just put out a million dollar reward in, in your case. That's uh, correct. With, without the others. That's correct. He wanted the government to offer an unprecedented $1 million reward when the usual reward at the time was between 50000 and 100000 I said I didn't think they'd do it for just one murder case, no matter how tragic. What about setting up a special category for murders where the victim was seemingly a random victim of violence and police believe they were quite close to laying charges. I took the suggestion to one of Premier Steve Brack's advisers, Jane Wilson, a person with a keen social conscience who was a respected colleague when she was an on-the-road reporter. Brax, to his credit, ran with the idea, despite some public servants pouring cold water on the concept. In 2003, the reward was announced. It would result in breakthroughs in several cases such as Messina Helvarkas, who was murdered tending her grandmother's grave just days before Jane was killed, and James Rousseau, ambushed in Nutterwadding in 2008. 
The scheme, by the way, has now been broadened to include cold case murders, and there's another on the verge of a breakthrough. But what about Jane? According to John McGill, when the reward was posted, the names of those who were involved quickly came to the police. One of the best parts of it, because when that reward was posted publicly, it was less than 48 hours. I had the information as, as to the people. We just didn't say anything to anybody about it because uh, uh, Ron told us virtually in confidence at that time, so we couldn't betray that. The chief investigator in the case was veteran homicide detective senior sergeant Ron Eddles. Now, finally, the alternative theory grew stronger. Philip Peters made friends in prison, including a key figure in a major drug syndicate with strong links to Geelong bikies. The theory is this. Bikies, led by Stephen John Morty, were hired to kill Carmel Kipri, the blonde mother in the four-wheel drive who lived three from the corner in Muriel Street. Four days they followed Jane, believing she was Carmel. The pot-bellied gunman was Morty, and the man who stole the getaway car was his mate, Jamie Reynolds. After the reward was announced, a witness told police a week after the murder, Reynolds said, we got the wrong Sheila. Morty became a recluse and rarely ventured outside for the next 18 months. Police say because he feared being identified as the gunman. Two people witnessed Jane Thurgood Dove's murder. At least one picked Morty as the killer from a series of photos. As we understood, we heard from one, they'd found a can, a drink can. I think it could have been a beer can. And uh, I said, but did you get any prints off it? And he said, yes, we did, but we can't match it to anybody. The shooter, see, it could have been the shooter's. Yeah, could have been Morty's fingerprints on it. If he was sitting in the car with the driver and he's doing the shoot, there's only two people in the car, isn't he? So it could have been Morty's fingerprints. Well, but by the time of the breakthrough, it was already too late. Police identified Stephen Morty and Jamie Reynolds as persons of interest, but both men are now dead. The shooter, Morty, died from drug abuse in September 2001. The attention turned to the driver, Reynolds. The plan was to question him, offering a deal to turn on the person who put out the contract on Carmel Kipri. In April 2004, homicide investigators were ready, but days before they were to grab Reynolds, he drowned in a boating accident at Barwon Heads. And uh, I think uh, Reynolds was... Yeah, well, apparently Ron told us that when it happened, he said, oh because he, he told us he was going to go and talk to this Reynolds and he went off on leave or something and when he came back, it had happened on, say, the Friday and we saw it in the paper and I said to God, John, that's the one that Ron was going to go and talk to. So he missed him by that much. Uh, we we learnt Reynolds' death was in the paper, as mentioned. Helen sprung it. I didn't take a great, great deal of notice of reading it. But uh, Helen read it and mentioned it. He drowned on the Sunday and Ron phoned on the Monday morning and said, I've let you down. Because, as he said, he was going to go and, and 
catch up with Reynolds on that Monday. And as he said in later editions, when he's made comment, he could have done more work on Reynolds. Now, former lead investigator Ron Idles has revealed in his new book, police resources were diverted away from the investigation, instead funneled into Melbourne's growing gangland war, a decision that left Helen and John devastated. This is where John and Helen McGill question the priorities of the criminal justice system. Many investigations, including Jane's, were put on hold as a large section of the investigative resources, including physical and electronic surveillance, were assigned to the Piranha Task Force looking at gangland murders. You've made a really valid point to me. Here's the case of an innocent person, an innocent mother, uh, you know, a person who's never been involved with the underworld, but all the resources, you know, surveillance and, and telephone intercepts and listening devices and that sort of stuff, the, um, the really expensive stuff, was all being used for the Piranha Task Force looking that's at yeah, gangland murders. Yep. We thought... It was just just wrong, outright wrong, that uh, we were treated unfairly. I said the family's been treated unfairly over this. In an open letter to the Premier, Mr McGill says a lack of police resources is robbing his family of justice. It is not a question of resources. It's a question of being able to crack the case by getting someone to provide the information. If you're enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And remember to rate and comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So what about the policeman who'd failed the lie detector test? He was asked, are you responsible for the death of Jane Thurgood Dove? As he wrongly believed Jane's husband Mark killed her out of jealousy over their relationship, he actually did feel responsible. But the policeman was not responsible for the death, but he was responsible for the investigation heading down the wrong path. If he truly cared for Jane, he should have answered the police questions in the first place. Allowing himself to be cleared, then police would not have wasted years on the wrong track. Yet there are others in the Geelong gang who know the truth. And there is a million dollars and an indemnity for anyone who can lead police to the person willing to pay a hit team to kill the Sheila in Muriel Street. As John McGill says, there is no crime that can't be solved. With the passage of time, it becomes more difficult, but, but they remain, un they remain uh, active and open and, and we're still uh, hopeful of getting a result. Their attention has since been focused on finding the driver of the getaway car and whoever organised the murder. Police guaranteeing indemnity to any member of the hit team that's prepared to give evidence against the principal organiser. And a $1 million award still stands, along with a promise that anyone who provides information can remain anonymous. And for the wrong reason, they're keeping it quiet. And I do believe now is the time to stand up. We haven't got much time left, we know that. And we would like to see some sort of justice for Jane before we die. The case of Jane Thurgood Dove seems so bizarre. 
so tragic, so many coincidences, so many sliding door moments that it's sort of like a one-off case. But the truth is, it happens more often than people would think. The reason for that is pretty simple. A lot of hitmen are simply stupid. There's no greater myth in the underworld than that of hitmen. They're supposed to be these cool, under-pressure, clinical guys, forensically carrying out their craft, experts. We use the term professional hit when many of them are nothing like it. Nothing could be further than the truth that hitmen are some sort of elite super crooks. The reality is, most of them are too stupid to organise their own crimes and too immoral to care about their victims. They are truly the bottom dwellers of the underworld. Because often they're so scrappy, mistaken identity hits are tragically all too common. There was a gangster with a target on his head who knew it was only a matter of time before they came for him. After all, he'd fallen out with the Comancheros, certainly one of, if not, the most ruthless outlaw motorcycle gang in Australia. He'd already been shot in the leg, but suspect the next one would be in the head. It wouldn't be a wounding or a warning. It'd be the end. His only hope, it would seem, would be if the hit squad that was sent for him was particularly stupid. Which is why he took to parking his luxury BMW sedan with identifiable Queensland plates two doors from his house, even though he could have easily concealed it in his garage at the rear. The plan was simple. Fasad Rasuli, 26, lived in a street of similar looking townhouses, and if his would-be killers were spectacularly inept, they may just pick the wrong house. Police believe the contract killers spotted the car and drove down the rear laneway to shoot Rasuli. They had a choice of a dark or a light grey front door and identical freestanding garages at the rear. In short, they all looked the same. Outside in the lane was a Comanchera murder squad waiting to ambush Rasuli. Murdered, leaving a mate's house. The 22-year-old victim, known as Mo, finished playing video games with friends in a garage and was leaving via the back laneway when he was gunned down. The hit team opened fire even though Mo Usul was slight with short hair and Rasuli was twice the size with long hair and Rasuli was still using a walking stick due to the injuries from the previous shooting while Usul walked without a limp. They looked nothing alike, not that that seemed to worry the murder squad, They'd come to kill, and kill they did. His killers have yet to be found. In September 1984, 32-year-old Lindsay Simpson was shot in the back of the head as he arrived with his wife and baby daughter at the Lower Plenty home of his brother-in-law, Alan Williams. The court was told Williams, a drug dealer, was the intended victim. Pollitt had been hired to kill him for $10,000 and despite pleas from Simpson that he'd got the wrong man, he didn't back off. Simpson was not a criminal, was perfectly innocent and Pollitt had no reason to shoot him as he didn't even know him. Back in 1984, drug dealer Alan Williams was the most wanted man in Australia on both sides of the fence. He'd paid for a failed murder attempt on New South Wales undercover policeman Mick Drury and if Williams confessed, would have implicated corrupt police and serious gangsters in the failed hit. Williams was tipped off not to go back to his Lower Plenty home. Tragically, his brother-in-law, Lindsay Simpson, 
was not warned. You can hear William's version of these events in an earlier podcast of Naked City. He told me, I was told I was to be knocked. I was completely paranoid and I clean forgot that Lindsay was coming to the house that night. Too late, Pollock realised the man he ordered from the car was not Williams. While he would officially deny he was the murderer, Pollock virtually admitted to me that he was guilty. I maintain to this day I am totally innocent, he said, but he added, he was a poor bloke who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I've been told that he, that is the gunman, which we know is really Pollock, ran down the drive and wasn't wearing a balaclava because it was night. He was looking in the car and thought, fuck, that ain't Williams. But he knew the guy would be able to identify him. So it wasn't a case of mistaken identity. It was a matter of survival. Back in 2004, police found that a hit team was going to target a key Carlton crew member, lawyer-turned-gangster Mario Condello. The team knew Condello would take his small dog for a dawn walk past the Brighton General Cemetery and thought that was the perfect place for an ambush. But the Piranha Task Force scooped up Condello to make sure he was nowhere near the area as the team waited for their man. Would-be killer Sean Sonnet was recorded saying, I'm going to have to walk up beside him and shoot him. On that cold morning in June 2004, 170 police were scattered around the area, waiting when the hitman saw a large man walking his little dog outside the cemetery. It was a different big man with a different small dog. If police had not moved in precisely at that moment, it is entirely possible the wrong man would have been knocked and maybe no one would have worked out who was the real target. Maybe police would have looked in the background of this unknown big man and found that he had debts or personal problems. Maybe just like Jane, that investigation would have gone down the wrong track until it was too late. But in this case, of course, they were fully aware who the real target was to be, Mario Condello, who wasn't even in the area. It didn't do him much good because in February 2006, he was shot dead returning to his Brighton home. That murder remains unsolved. Naked City is brought to you by The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Subscriptions power our newsroom, so to support independent journalism, consider subscribing to the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. This episode was produced and edited by Anu Haswalt. Archival is thanks to Nine News. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. I'm John Sylvester. Thanks for listening.